I'm very excited to be welcoming a very special guest to the podcast, the author of a book I read very recently and responded to in the most beautiful way. It blew my mind and I just haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. Um, The book in question is called Train Lord, which is a memoir about how one man who suffered with a 10-month migraine, was unable to read, write, look at screens, or communicate with the modern world until a job opening as a train guard appeared and very well could be his salvation. I am delighted to welcome to the podcast the author of the critically acclaimed book Lion Attack, the inaugural winner of the Scribe Nonfiction Prize for Young Writers, an all-round funny guy, Oliver Mole. Oliver, welcome to Back to the Books. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Oh, it's such a pleasure, Kieran. I really appreciate it. I'm well, I'm well. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. I mean, this is essentially going to be an hour of me just gushing over the book. I I saw it on Instagram months and months ago when Proust was still doing the rounds, I think, and I fought very hard to get my hands on a copy. So when I did, I just could not put it down. I think the first thing that I want to start off with is, from your perspective, what is Train Lord about? Like, when you began pitching it out into the world, what did you envision this book to be? Because uh, from my perspective, it's more than just a memoir. It's more nuanced and complex. So I just would love to hear what you think about uh, in terms of what you think the book is about, so to speak. Uh, Yeah, again, thank you so much for your words. It really, really means a lot. Um, Yeah, it's funny, you know, like for me trying to write this book, the whole purpose was how how do you make someone understand what a 10-month migraine is? Even when I speak it out loud now, it seems absurd. It's, it, it seems so large and unknowable and, um, yeah, just just too complex, I think, to, to really, uh, yeah, like, A, I guess, have... Um, as a reader, like have empathy around and be as a writer, how do you, how do you translate that experience? So for me, this whole book, it was sort of an exercise in translation. Um, and I guess, you know, I played around a lot with, um, would it be told uh, in a linear function? Would it be straight memoir? What I came down to in the end was I needed to bring the reader as close as possible to this experience. And I knew that by just doing a strict memoir, I wasn't gonna get there. I knew that doing just fiction wouldn't have got there either, but I knew kind of trying to involve a hybrid of these things, I could kind of, my the analogy that I used was each one of the essays, and and, and essay literally just means to try. And I, that, that's all I was trying to do with each of these um, episodes, I would call them more chapters perhaps. And so I almost viewed the migraine as a sun in the middle of a huge galaxy. And each one of my um, chapters or essays were like planets. And the planets were all orbiting this sun. And I imagine that these planets were also um, sort of like wrapped in glass and then smashed. And so if you'll bear with me, what then I imagined was that each one of these reflections from each one of these planets or chapters was shining back more or less into creating this 
experience of the recreating this experience of the migraine, but sort of distorting it um, and approximating it and getting closer. So it, it was like, if I could just keep circling this central topic or theme of the migraine, and if I could use humor, if I could use sadness, if I could use fiction, if I could use nonfiction, if I could, um, you know, in certain times use reportage, I could try I just wanted people to understand. And, and I think what was really interesting for me writing this book was that I had no idea how to do it either. It wasn't like I sat down uh, and, you know, from, I had planned from A to B how it was going to end up. It, it was very much a process of me racking my brains to figure out how to translate um, this what seemed to be mostly untranslatable experience. I think that's so. absolutely perfect. Um, I love this idea of being centred, surrounded by uh, a manner of things that kind of lie in the outer periphery and you have to keep going further outward to see what else you can discover. And there's this duality of introspective and retrospective, which is completely fascinating. For listeners that aren't familiar with the story, and forgive me if this is paraphrasing somewhat, you suffered with an intense chronic pain that lasted 10 months. So this is, in a way, you telling your story about this. But again, for me, when you tell the story, you become this sort of omnipotent, omnipresent creator, ripping up the rules of what a memoir is because you start the book with so much humour and you really get a sense of who the character is, whether it's, you know, you writing from your perspective or it's Oliver as someone else, but then you get further along in the book, that all starts to peel away and you see that there's something lying beneath. Mm. You kind of trick the reader on multiple occasions saying, you know, this could be real, this 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 isn't real, uh, or you tell a story and then you revisit a few chapters later only to say, actually, it never happened or you retell it from a completely different perspective mm. you distort reality ever so slightly and that blew my mind because you're playing with this idea of objective truth i mean what is objective truth really and when you're in that position of being so powerless the line between reality and fiction does start to blur the things cross over between the two there is this you know, intersectionality in the middle between reality and fiction, you know, your mind plays tricks on you when you are in that vulnerable state. And then you're kind of replicating that experience by playing tricks on the reader. So it's putting us in your shoes without it being really obvious either. Was that your intention the whole way through? Um, I mean, what you're saying sounds genius. <laughs> and, and again, if, if I think if I had been more, I think one thing though, that I was thinking about when you said that though, was that, you know, in, in many ways, this book is about the stories I needed to tell myself to survive. And so, you know, like, I, I suppose like, you know, during that 10 month migraine, a lot of what I would call sort of time travel in a way the, the things that kept me alive were these memories that I would sort of go into and a lot of the time I was just lying there with my eyes closed and so in order to in order to kind of uh brave this experience which is extremely lonely and and you know something that uh, I had no idea how lonely chronic pain could be before I'd experienced it you know it, it was 
it was, yeah, it was just something that was beyond, I, I hadn't thought about it that much. And, and until it struck me down, it became really bad. And, and yeah, back to your point, I think, and also back to my previous point, you know, when we're talking about, it was really important for me that uh, these, what you might call tricks on the reader of saying something is true and something is not true. We're not just cheap tricks for narrative effect. Like, again, like I, my father is a central figure in the book and, and I knew that like, you know, they, they just didn't really know how bad it was, partly because I couldn't, uh, you know, like use a phone at the time. I would get migraines when I would look at screens up close. And so I was limited in that capacity. But when I was trying to explain to them like what it was like, and even in a conversation like this, it was still quite hard. And so in the text, when, when I tell a story and I elicit emotional response that I can feel in myself and I'm hoping the reader will feel, and, it, and it, some of these are to me, like some of the most poignant parts in the book. And then I tell you, that's a lie. And first of all, you've had this deep feeling of grief. And then you've had this deep feeling of being cheated. And then my job as an author is to make that worthwhile. So when the payoff comes, when I tell my father, like, okay, but like in these story or like to the reader in these stories, those moments of grief and isolation that you were feeling like that is a metaphor for how I was feeling over here. So, you know, I, I knew it was a gamble. It, it was, it was actually like, yeah, something that I'd seen Tim O'Brien do and the things they carried, which was a, um, an extremely like moving book for me that I, um, read shortly after I could read again. And yeah, so I, I sort of, uh, you know, as good as all writers sometimes do, you, you steal people's tricks, but I, I hopefully made it enough of my own. A lot of that did really happen. You know, like I was, I was really just trying to, yeah, make my father, and, and other people understand. I think you do it so well because you make us as the reader feel comfortable. There's a familiarity there because I think we all resonate with the memories that you present to us, whether it's growing up and going through some difficulties or kind of the immense pressure of the world getting to us and a plethora of different outlets. We also resonate, I think, with the little white lies we tell ourselves just to get through the day and get through certain situations just to kind of reassure us. I don't think it feels cheap at all or like a trick. I think it's a very much an eye-opening experience in that aha moment, like I get it now. And you do something very similar that I think Carmen Maria Macado does in her incredible book, In the Dream House which is that you sink your teeth into the deep heart of a very personal, very emotional story. You chop it up, you throw it around, you mix it into a cauldron, and then you throw it out all on the wall in a very non-linear fashion, which maybe might not make sense at first, but then slowly you begin to understand the rhythm and the patterns and the new form in which it takes. And basically at its core, it becomes a story about survival and hope and love. Mm. It's just done in the most brilliant way. And I I love how you haven't told this story in a linear fashion, you know, moving from those darkest moments to a kind of normal shift at the railway with your colleagues. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, telling the story from A to B, which it... Uh, eventually does through a whole series of things but but something that um i was thinking about a lot and it's something that um hannah gadsby talks about as well is that you know a narrative um 
basically is about two things. It's creating tension and releasing, creating tension and releasing. And if you can keep doing that, and a really good way to do that is through, you know, jokes and tragedy or jokes and tragedy, or it's like what she talks about the joke, like the setup and the punchline and the setup and the punchline. Yeah. Um, and I was, yeah, I was thinking about that rhythm a lot because, you know, as, as authors and as writers, I mean, there are, there are so many ways to tell a story and, and, and like, you know, the people that you've mentioned and, and, and the people that I've um, studied and continue to read, like it, it's astounding how many different ways you could tell a story. But I think, you know, my mentor, Amanda Lowry also talks about how like stories need to find their form, right? So sometimes you'll read a book that, um, you know, it's like almost there. Like you can feel that there's something there, but it just, it never quite settled into its sort of like, as if it were a puzzle and then it just needed to fit and, and stop. And, and for whatever reason, I always, I always had to write it. Like I had the voice, which took a long time to get, but I had the voice mm-hmm. and I knew that with that voice, I could just write forever. Like I knew that that wasn't the issue. The issue was, yeah, how to make people feel what I felt and see what I saw. And a really good way to do that, which is what Scott McClanahan talks about a lot, is through humor. He says, like, if you can use humor, especially like really early on, you can get to some of the most fucked up places because people, yeah. people will go along with you. Like you've developed yeah. a rapport and a connection. And sometimes you read these other books that are really serious and dark, but they can't get there emotionally to the spots that they might have been able to if they just showed a little bit of um, humanity. You know, humanity, like literature, is about laughter and death and sorrow and bravery and courage and uh, connection and hope and and all of these things. And so, yeah, it was... um, it was really important to me. Uh, probably the most important thing was to to try and find these moments of humor in an otherwise quite bleak narrative. I think that's incremental to any form of storytelling, particularly in one where, as you say, it can be bleak and dark and you need those moments of releasing tension, of light relief. You use this sense of humor as a, a vessel to navigate through these dark moments, whether it's you know, alcohol abuse or that brilliant moment in the book where you're invited to an orgy, (laughs) but it brings on this overwhelming sense of panic. And as a reader, you laugh along at this kind of fish out of water situation, but then you begin to realise that something's not right and it hits you out of nowhere, much like the onset of your chronic pain. It becomes like this inward pull of a magnet and you have to completely let it immerse you in a way because these moments are peppered throughout in a sense that you're reminding us, the reader, this is still an ongoing experience. You know, we're still on this journey with you. One of the things that really interests me, and I'm seeing it a lot in different books, Uh, both fiction and non-fiction, is this idea of the body Mm. and the way that the body can fail us, Mm. but also the idea of how we can reclaim our own bodies. Mm. In particular, I thought of Maddie Mortimer's uh, novel, Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, but the primary voice of the novel is the main character's cancer Mm. that is spreading throughout her body. So throughout the novel, you have this duality of the disease 
and a woman fighting to take back control of her body and regain autonomy in a way. So when I was reading Train Lord, I thought of the exact same duality, this time in Oliver the Voice mm. and uh, or Oliver the Mind and Oliver the Body mm. fighting for control and how the latter is almost playing tricks on you or deceiving you, um, you know, to go back to my earlier point of uh, tricks and uh, things like that. And I promise there is a question in this. I am just trying to best formulate my responses. Uh, was that something you knew you wanted to kind of portray going in, playing with notions of the mind and the body being at war with one another? Mm. I didn't write it for commercial reasons, I guess, if that makes sense. I, I literally wrote it because I knew that if I couldn't get this story that I felt physically was trapped inside me, if I couldn't honor it and at least try to communicate it, then... Uh, it sounds dramatic, but like I, I would spiritually die and I would never be able to kind of move on with my life. Well, I'll start here. So I started when I started working for the railway, eventually by that stage, I was no longer in constant pain. The migraine would sort of come and go. I'd do these absurd, you know, like 50 neck rotations one way, 50 the other, stretch for half an hour before work. And I'd tell myself that would buy me an hour or whatever. And and then I'd get on the trains. And so, you know, as a train guard, we do, um, we open and close doors. You're a safety officer, you do announcements. And then between stops, say from like uh, Central to Redfern, I would have about two minutes. And so I had a, a pencil and a, or a pen and a, and a little uh, notebook that I'd titled my migraine handbook at that point. And, and I just started, I called them sketches. I just started trying to sketch these memories in the most anti-perfectionistic way possible. Uh, they didn't even have to make sense or be good. I was just trying to get little paragraphs because that's what the two minutes dictated. And, you know, over, over the months, and th that was also my limitation. I, I couldn't still really look at screens that much. And, um, and so these little paragraphs, like they started building up a bit. Um, and I suppose at a certain point, what I realized when I, eventually quit the trains, which was bef uh, in 2019, and I'd saved up $25,000, which was more money than I'd ever had, like, like four times as much money as I'd ever had in my whole life, right? And, and I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit this job, and I'm gonna move to Barcelona, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna write this book. It, it, was, it was absurd to do because this job was a government job, it paid extremely well. Um, and a lot of people told me I was mad, but I felt too close to the story in Sydney to do it. And so I quit and I, and I, and when I remember like when I sat down to write, what became very apparent very quickly was that here was Oliver, the me in, in real life. Um, and then there's the Oliver in the book. And I knew what I had to do then was not only recreate this world that I had gone through, which was marred and dressed in a lot of trauma and pain and insecurity and loneliness and things that still terrified me to look at square. So I knew I had to create that world for this character. And then I had to hold his hand and walk him through everything that had happened. And it was 
terrifying a lot of the time, to be honest. But it was also something I knew deep down that I had to do. And it wasn't until the very end of the book that I realized that this is actually a technique they use in therapy. Oh, and really? and you, can, you can sort of rewrite your own ending or you can play with what has happened. You, you can show your... Uh, your, your, um, you can show your past to be malleable as, as memory perhaps is malleable. You, you can allow yourself to heal. And so, again, I wasn't... I, maybe I was writing it for cathartic reasons, but it, it felt... Yeah, I had a friend tell me recently, he's like, I, I read your book and it felt like, if, it felt like you were writing for your life. And, and I think that's a pretty good, um, honestly, analogy because... I really, I really, it was almost, again, like this character Oliver was like the little boy inside me, perhaps. And in order for him to heal, the character had to heal. So again, it was like mind and body kind of. And it was like my body had made it out, but my mind was still very much in that space. And so by writing this book and then taking this mind back through, it was almost like I got to bring my mind to my body. And, and I, yeah, I remember finishing it and just like honestly just weeping with joy like i i couldn't believe i couldn't believe that i'd done it and i and i don't even i wouldn't be able to do it again like it was it was just one of those it does feel like the ending of the book is very much an ending to a particular chapter of your life that does involve extreme pain confusion sorrow and isolation but there is also this sense of togetherness when you reach the last page mm. like we're witnessing this harmonious act finally between body and mind mm. it feels peaceful i want to talk about trains um from the train lord himself were trains ever seen as something important to you as a child or was it literally just this random job advert that caught your attention one day and you thought that might be fun that might you know could be different um <clears throat> now that i think about it like when i was a kid my dad would always take me uh we'd just go watch the trains that's what we did it was a beautiful activity that we did together but in terms of uh when i when i got this job um so yeah for for people who were listening i suppose i, I had the 10-month migraine um i almost uh, jumped in front of a train. I'm really glad I didn't. And I went to, um, back to my parents and I spent three months there sort of re rehabilitating and seeing someone who I called the healer who wasn't a real doctor, but he uh, manipulated all the muscles and nerves in my neck. And what that meant was that I was able uh, suddenly, I, I wasn't in pain. I still couldn't look at screens that much, but I wasn't in pain. So I couldn't stay at home forever. I was like, Christ, I was an adult. I was like 28 or, you know, like I had to go back to Sydney and try and get on with my life as best as I could. Um, and so I took two painkillers one day and just Googled no experience full-time Sydney. And that's the honest truth. I'd been a writer for like eight years. I had, had one book come out. I'd never, I'd worked in a lot of bars, but I wasn't that, I, I wanted something solid and stable and dependable. And I wanted something pretty much the antithesis of what I had known for a while and so yeah miraculously this job just came up it just it was the first thing i knew i had probably like half an hour looking at the screen before like the pain would come or you know i was yeah like the pain medicine would help so i just speed typed an application sent it in i still not too sure what it said but um 
I, yeah, you know, like 40,000 people applied for this job. And in my intake, there was something like 20 or 22 people. It's, wow. it's astounding. Like I put it honestly down to a miracle because not only uh, did it allow me to, you know, have, um, like I said, you get paid really well, but you also, you, you're being told what to do at every step of the way. And, and for me as a writer who'd always been, you know, never really had a mentor, never really had much direction, just assumed that if I kept producing and producing, you know, a very capitalist idea that things would just kind of work out in the end. And it was actually such a relief to uh, almost be um, consumed or absorbed by this government you know, organization where they tell you what time you start, they tell you where you have lunch, they tell you, you know, like when your break is, if you're going to do overtime, they'll call you like, yeah, I'd never experienced anything quite like it. And I found it quite funny that I was in there because I didn't feel like, you know, my personality type was, but I I found it fascinating. And, and, and also I think something that's important is that, you know, it cannot be underestimated what a steady paycheck and for sobri- for sobriety does for your mental health. I was a bit of like a party boy in my twenties and definitely gave it a nudge and had a like too probably too good of a time. Um, and that yeah, at a certain point, sort of came crashing down quite obviously. And what was brilliant about the trains was you know they drug test you, they alcohol test you. Uh, you can't have any any drinks like forty eight hours before your shift starts or twenty four hours. Sorry. And so then you're doing, you know, like seven to 10 uh, shifts in a row. And oftentimes you're doing shift work. So you're starting at two in the morning, three in the morning. So on the one hand, really interesting to return to myself in a very like raw kind of way. It was like my good friend Sam was like, oh, it's like you're in um, government rehab or something like yeah. that, <laughs> which was which was really cool. But um yeah, then, then, then you've obviously got to do the work on yourself because you are quite isolated and, you know, uh, doing shift work and, you know, eating poorly if you, not that I was, but if you're eating poorly and doing shift work and not getting enough sleep, it's like all these factors add up to, um, to yeah, what, what can be for certain people triggers towards depression and anxiety. And so I, I found it really interesting. It was hard at certain points, but at the end of the day, like, it was so much better than what I had known. And then, so then the decision to quit this, you know, what they called golden handcuffs, right? Because like, it, you know, pe- people would be like, Oliver, you're on house money. Like, mate, you'd be mad to quit. But I had to do it. I had to do it. And these really interesting things started happening, actually. This really interesting thing started happening. Um, the first, they were like miraculous coincidences. And read into them what you will, but for me, they meant everything. And so the first thing was that I, uh, I used to go to this library in Sydney. Um, it was my, my favorite library. It was, uh, in Double Bay and, and I'd have been having these dreams that were like pretty bizarre, like nightmares, that kind of thing. And I was like, you know what, we're going to get a book on dreams and we're just, we're going to do a bit of research here. And so I got one of these books, took it home, put it next to my bed, next to my like big stack of other mental health books or whatever. And, um, and then I opened it two weeks later and, and I'd already booked my ticket to Spain, by the way, to Barcelona. And in the middle of this dreams book was a bookmark and the bookmark said Biblioteca de Catalunya. So like, uh, Catalunya libraries. And I was like, what the fuck? Like there's in my dreams book, there's a bookmark from the place that I'm already going and have a plane ticket to. So that for me, I was like, that's, 
that's pretty, that's a bit of a sign, but I wasn't going to let it like go to, I was like, you know, all right, let's see what else happens. And so then I moved to Barcelona and was living in Raval. Um, and, and I was having a really hard time trying to, yeah, write, write this book. Basically I was spent, I'd already spent like a lot of my like maybe half my money say, and I was frustrated and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I quit this job and I was, I was beating myself up. And anyway, I got this bookmark out and I was like, I wonder where this library is. Like surely this library, it's going to be somewhere in Barcelona. And I typed in the address and it literally showed up like the little blue dot and where I was, was next to one another. And the library was across no. the street, just directly across the road. And so I went there and I sat outside this library. It was this hospital that had been built in like 1734. And, and at the time I'd been reading a lot of Roberto Bolaño. Um, and I knew that he had lived in Barcelona, but I didn't know where. And so I was at the library and I just plugged into Google. I did a little bit of research and I found this old article that had been translated that Roberto Bellani had written at this cafe, this address. And so I plugged that in and then I started walking and I'm walking and I'm realizing I'm kind of walking towards the cafe that I used to write at like every day. And, and then I show up there and it's the same cafe and around the corner, which I'd never been, is a plaque that said Roberto Bellani uh, used to live above here and right here. And I had like these, no had like these shivers because I felt like, you know, it's, you, you could say that it probably is just like all coincidence, but I also think like how much more interesting to, to like trust in that something larger, especially when you're making like a huge life, um, big decision. Yeah. yeah and like gamble, like, I didn't, again, really kind of have a backup plan and I didn't really know what would happen once I finished the book, but I just knew that like, that was kind of what I needed to invest my energy in or something. And yeah, and, and you know, I wouldn't recommend a lot of people, you know, bet everything on black on a dream, but yeah, in the end I was able to finish the book and I had a couple hundred dollars left and um, COVID had happened I moved back home and then I got the book deal and then I got the grant that has taken me now to Georgia. So That's such a great story. I'm um, fascinated by experiences that are almost bestowed upon us by a higher force. I'm not what you would call necessarily spiritual, but I do believe things happen for a reason. Sometimes things do insert themselves into your life like a missing jigsaw piece and you can't explain it but it just feels correct I mean if I've learned anything over the last two years with the pandemic and lockdowns and loss it is just to take more risks make that gamble because you know what if what have you got to lose yeah I want to circle back um, if you don't mind to your sobriety and the themes of mental health throughout the book because um, at the time of recording it's International Men's Day which raises awareness around uh, mental health in uh, men Mm. and there is certainly a lot of takeaways in the book in regards to mental health not only from your perspective but in wider society and how men perhaps feel like they still can't articulate truly how they feel is there something or anything you want people to to take away from the book in terms of getting the conversation going and how men can speak about their feelings. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Like, first and foremost, I think this is a book about chronic pain. And I think, you know, we're so fortunate that... Um, that depression and anxiety and, um, you know, these things that I have been privy to and I've had lots of my friends and people that I love be um, affected by. Um, I think what I was trying to do with this book was, you know, honestly, I was trying to write it for two people. I was trying to write it... I was trying to do a magic trick where I kind of thought maybe if I could write this book, then... Who's to say that, you know, Oliver in 2015 when he was in his bed with the migraine, who's to say that Oliver from the future writing this book might not be saving me in the past? Like, who's to say that, like, through this wonderful storytelling world we call fiction or stories or whatever you like to term it, it felt important to try and save this person through storytelling and through literature. And it also felt really, really important to um, write this book for other people who are affected by um, chronic pain, especially, um, because, yeah, it is just one of the most lonely and isolating, invisible uh, diseases that, 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 I, that I could even, yeah, that, I, that I've um, been affected by and could think of. And so something else that happened is that I turned this book into a stage show. So Yes. The, interesting thing that happened with that was you know when I would finish and come off the stage and so I'd memorized like an hour's worth of the stories that I would tell over the music that I eventually wrote the book to and I'd had a big um, visual thing behind me and a lot of the times it would be men generally over the ages of 50 that I mean they, they were the ones that would come with their wives and they have money to see theater um, but they would be the ones that would be waiting for me backstage and and I'd be looking at these people in their eyes when I was performing and I swore that they weren't enjoying it. Like, it seemed like mm. they're just looking at me stone-faced, kind of like, like, oh, get me the hell out of here. But, it, like, mm. nine times out of ten, they'd come up at the end and they'd be like, oh, mate, like, yeah, fuck, like, yeah, I've had this back thing for, like, 20 years and, you know, just, like, hearing, you know, someone else kind of voice those things it's um and sometimes they just say like oh it's interesting like it's it's like really yeah thanks mate thanks you know and like but even even to have that intergenerational sort of dialogue with people around chronic pain and mental health and the things that hurt us that are invisible was yeah profoundly moving and um to answer your question 100 percent, i think like talk Talk, people, men, talk, just like we're allowed to talk. I, I think, yeah, we get, myself included, even now, like I, f I feel myself like clamming up and closing up and like wanting to be um, tough or wanting to be stoic or, or grin and bear it or whatever. And, and each time I do that, then my body starts talking to me in some way. And, and, and so I've got this really interesting relationship with my body now because this experience where like, you know, either my neck will tense up or my back or my knee occasionally will twing or very occasionally the migraine will come back, but I know what to do now. And I don't, I just sort of talk to myself. I tell myself I love myself. I sit there, I meditate for a little bit. Um, I, I don't get worked up basically. And I think, yeah, in terms of like the mental health angle, I would just encourage 
everyone a to be able to talk to other people when you're feeling that which is the obvious one but i think the one that doesn't get spoken about is developing the relationship where you talk to yourself it took my father and it's in the book and for me it's one of the most important powerful um parts is like he told me that you know when he was 16 he'd made a pact with himself that he was going to love himself no matter what and he's like a military man, right? He's not like yeah. a he's like a he's like a hard ass like he's beautiful but he's like he's serious. And he's mm-hmm. like he's like Oliver, I made a pack myself that no matter what, no matter what, I was going to love myself. I didn't care what anyone said. I didn't like it didn't care if it was selfish. I was just going to love myself. And I realized that at like 31 or whenever I was then, I still hadn't done that. Some people no. are born with that, but I I never knew that. And you know, perhaps that's why I was um, drinking so much and uh, partying and smoking and taking drugs and all these things was, you know, I mean, obviously they're fun. Like, I'm not going to say they're not. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's heaps of fun. But at a certain point, I think it tips over from being fun to being a bit like you're trying yeah. to fill a void or you're trying to you're trying to repair something that's not there. For sure. It's like a dependency. It stops being... A recreational activity and you know that's the moment when you go Ooh. oh this is no good yeah <laughs> this is no yeah. good i love hearing you talk about your father that way you know for a man that's so as you say laser focused military background he has that beautiful self-appreciation i mean i can somewhat relate uh, personally you know i'm 28 going on 29 and i'm only just in a position where i'm confident in myself and I'm trying not to compare myself to others even being in the LGBTQ plus community sometimes I felt like I wasn't part of it and I had to condition myself in a certain way to feel like I did belong Mm. and I do feel like that is a universal feeling and it can be a shared experience regardless of who you are the idea of belonging with not only within a community, but I think belonging uh, within yourself. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the stage show, uh, are there any plans to tour it or bring it to the UK? I mean, it's something that I would love to see. The, the stage show came around in a really interesting way because these paragraphs that I've been writing on the train, um, at a certain point I invited up my friend Taylor and Sam, and I, I used to live in this sort of attic on um, in, in uh, Darlington in Sydney, and I invited them around and... Um, and I said, like, I'm, I'm just going to, like, I hadn't shown anyone anything, right? And, and I was like, I'm just going to read you uh, things for about two minutes. And I just need to know, like, you know, what do you think, right? And I, and I read it over, I've been playing this sort of same song over and over um, at, at nighttime when I was, like, editing it. Um, and they ended up really liking it. And, and then, so it made sense for me... Well, and then I'd been running like a literature night in Sydney. Um, I started running a literature night, which is just a storytelling night. Anyone who wanted to tell a story could just get up and tell one, basically. Heaps of fun. And anyway, and so like, yeah, um, I would tell a story at the end and these stories started growing into chapters and and I'd always uh, do it over music. And, And then before I left for Barcelona, I had pretty much half of the what I would call, yeah, my fringe show written. And so I um, performed that and it went for, I think about 40 minutes or something. It was like, yeah, the longest thing I'd ever memorized. And, and then that went really well. And so then I decided, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna do Adelaide Fringe. That's what I'd decided. And 
But, you know, what, and this is a long-winded way of getting to will I do it, like, in the UK, is that, you know, to, to do it at Adelaide Fringe, like, first of all, like, no one knew me. <laughs> and so you, so you have to book your theatre, you have to book your tech, you got to pay for your music rights, got to pay for your comm. Like, all up, I think it costs, like, seven grand to do it or something. And then I think mm. on that season, luckily, yeah, I have... Um, a friend of mine who I call like my angel and uh, he ended up he was like Oliver have you done any um, have you done any PR for, for this and I was like oh just like uh, no I made nah and he's like okay because um, Adelaide Fringe is like really competitive and I'm going to just do everything for you for free he, he works for PR his name's Anthony he's a beautiful beautiful man um, and he ended up getting me like press reviews I got wow. on radio, I, like without him, everything would have flopped. But um, the show ended up winning. Well, yeah, the first half of the season was pretty sporadic in terms of audience, but then the back half um, was like filling out, which was really nice. And then it won a Best Theatre Award, which um, astounded me because I'd never really like, you know, st- I was just trying to tell the story. I was like, just listen to the story. Um, and then, yeah, and then I did it at Sydney Fringe, um, and I made back most of the money on that because it all sold out, which is great. But this is all to say that in the UK, in order to do it, it's something like, say, Edinburgh Fringe, you know, like the costs involved are just astounding. At this stage, it's really hard to know. Maybe this idea has been satisfied. It's run the course that it needed to run, and now it's well and truly time for me to move on with my life and you know try and write a novel <laughs> well there you go there's there's the next peak of the mountain um i mean i'd love to see it at some point if it does ever make it over to the uk i just think there is a timeless universal appeal in both the book and how you perform it in a stage show but obviously i know it can also be difficult to revisit that headspace mm. but i will keep everything crossed that it does make its way over to the uk at Thanks, some point. <laughs> going back to trains briefly um when you were here for the hardback launch yep. in the summer um i'd love to know and because i'm very curious and a bit nosy what was your experience of the trains here in the uk compared to australia because I travel a lot on the trains commuting to London and sometimes it's not my favourite thing in the world. <laughs> As someone who is so ingrained in that profession, I would just love to know. I actually didn't mind them, like, especially the above ground ones. I thought they were, they were like, pretty nice. It was cool. Um, one of the things that I did when I was in the UK was uh, I took eight books and I put them on the railways. And so... I saw this. Very cool. I just wrote a little message inside them saying, you know, like, literature saved my life and perhaps if you pick this up, there might be something in it worthwhile. I kind of just wanted to... I thought it'd be interesting, if nothing else, to see where they ended up. But one of the things that happened that I think would be different than in Sydney was... And I someone had taken a photo of the book on Twitter and then put like a hashtag of trainload and that's how I found it and they said like it was a packed peak hour carriage like 4 or like 5pm or whatever like you couldn't even move and, yeah, and then right. there was this seat just with trainload on it and no one had picked it up and no one wanted to move it and no one wanted to engage with it because everyone was like too polite or reserved or like oh like I would never like in Australia people were like oh get out of the bloody way mate like I'm sitting down I like, love that it's so 
quintessentially British. Like, no, 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 no. Train Lord has its own seat. Yeah. Like, he's riding all the way to the end of the uh, the Victoria Line. All the way to the <laughs> It's such a British behaviour. I love it. I remember you actually posting um, pictures of the book on the underground across social media, and I thought it was a really cool idea. I guess to finish, I guess I want to say, you know, what you do so well in the book is that you remind us of the vast power of literature, of words, of language, and the importance of storytelling not even in a fictional sense, but the nature of storytelling, what it can do, how it makes us feel, how we can escape from the real world. It makes us feel better. You know, you're a train lord, but I'd also say you're a lord of literature or a lord of storytelling. It's so beautiful and it acts as a reminder as something we all need, especially now when things do seem particularly grim Mm. is this something you're channeling going forward into future projects you've got lined up like do you want to carry on this message yeah it's i mean yeah storytelling is so you know i mean it's vital right like it's 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 literally magic like you you meet the, the reader and the writer meet in this very bizarre surreal space that is outside of time uh, and and yeah, it's astounding. And you know, especially in a world that is so sped up these days, and your attention spans are so all over the place, and everything's vying for your time. And I'm the first to admit that you know, literature perhaps once was like you know the main you know form of cultural entertainment. Like these days, it is it is almost impossible to compete with everything else that's going on. But I think when you do invest in in literature and you do invest in stories, you slow down. And I think more than anything these days, like that's what we should be aiming to do is slowing down and breathing. I would say the two things for me moving forward. Um, yeah, I'm playing around with lots of different ideas. I've been living in Georgia for a little over 10 months now. Um, and you know, it's impossible to talk about Georgia without talking about the war that's happening not so far away. Um, and then the impact on the Georgians, um, the fallout of that war, um, which has sort of been forced gentrification through a lot of, um, Russians moving here and a lot of Russians with Mm -hmm. money, which is extremely complex because Russia already occupies 20% of Georgia legally. And so you've sort of got like a... A refugee intake with a with an oppressor situation and yeah just watching the Georgians sort of get priced out of their city um, listen I'm not I'm not too sure if this is something that I will write about directly or indirectly but I don't think you can write about being in Georgia without talking about that right now assuming the narrative that I write is about this everything I think always has to come back to hope even 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 the darkest books you read, the reason why they're good is because there are glimmers of hope. There's reflections of some of some possibility, um, and I think yeah, it's it's a really good reminder just to speak that out loud because yeah, there there needs to be especially right now so much hope in this world. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to write something well, like that. I think that. you will. You've phrased it so beautifully and poignantly now more than ever we need strength in our storytellers to provide that hope when it might feel like it's not available to us right now i can't thank you enough oliver for coming on and chatting with me i could keep talking to you all day i really could um to gush again i find you so interesting and funny and 
clever. To all the listeners, I implore you, please go and read Oliver's magnificent book, Train Lord, available in all good bookshops now. If you wish to find that spark of hope that you feel that the world is missing right now, Oliver Moll, it's been such a pleasure having you on Back to the Books. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Karen. It's been beautiful and amazing. And yeah, really, really appreciated your time. So thank you. Thank you.